cheers to another episode of the Wine Notes Podcast. I'm your guide, AJ Weinzettel, on this journey of stories showcasing the people behind the wonderful world of wine, where we dive into conversations ranging from terroir, viticulture, to favorite music, superpowers, and more. Please enjoy this episode of the Wine Notes Podcast. Leah, thank you so much for taking the time today. It's such a pleasure to, to sit down with you, and uh, you know, I, I can't thank you enough. Well, I'm delighted to be here, and I appreciate you reaching out. So, thank you for having me. Yeah, no, most definitely. Um, you know, you, I would almost consider you uh, definitely a veteran in the industry now. I mean, you started off at a think tank in D.C. and a wine shop in Virginia, Pinot Camp in 2004. You've worked with Drew Voigt, you know, Herb Quaddy, and you know, it sounds like you have some uh, interesting police officer stories with Chris Berg as well. <laughs> Uh, <laughs> uh, well, I'm sure we'll keep those, you know, under wraps and just, uh, and whatnot, but, uh, we didn't you know, steal it's, anything. okay, well, good <laughs> darn. Well, you know, that, that might be interesting. Uh, but you're also named, uh, in the, from the San Francisco Chronicle, the, in 2015, the, uh, number one winemaker to, to watch. So congratulations. I mean, it's quite a journey that you've been on. Yeah, that was very unexpected. That was Esther Mosby who came on board um, at the Chronicle back. I think that was like her first year, and um, and she she selected four of the the top winemakers in the winemakers in the U.S. to watch. But I was the only one from Oregon, and I was the only woman on the four on the list of four. So wow. I was surprised to say the Wait, least. Yeah, no, that's absolutely amazing. I mean, it's. Like, like I said, you have quite the, the quite the career. Mm, thank you. Yeah. Probably um, a lot of luck peppered in there too. <laughs> well, you got to have a bunch of luck, but I mean, there, there's talent in there as well, which thank is all you. good. You're welcome. Thank you. If you could pick, you know, um, a winemaker to, to collaborate with or whatever, you know, do you have anybody that you would be like, yeah, I'd really like to work with this person? Yeah, that's interesting. Um, I mean, I have, di I definitely have different friends in the industry who we've, you know, talked about collaborative ideas. Um, and yeah, it's funny. I mean, I was just, I was just kind of thinking about this not too long ago. Like if there was a, for me, it would be kind of a cool practice to get some women in wine that I really respect, um, who are doing some really innovative, different things. Um, you know, I have mentors who have coached me and, and, and I, I don't know if I would go backwards and go towards the mentors because I feel like that space has already been explored, if that makes any sense. Yeah. So, so finding, um, I guess, common ground with someone who's, who's kind of doing something unusual. Like I love, um, Anna at a Maurice wines. Are right. you familiar with a Maurice? I have not heard of that one. No, they're up in Walla Walla and, um, food and wine magazine named the top 15 women winemakers in the world back in 20, I think it was 2018 or 2019. And there were only three Americans. I was on the list and she was on the list as well. So she re was representing Washington, of course, in Oregon. Um, and we do a lot of um, joint dinners. We've done a couple um, with Ethan Stoll Restaurant Group up in Seattle. And we've met through that channel. And I just, I adore her. And I think she's a solid winemaker and she's got great stories and, and just she's sharp and smart and is a, a studied and learned winemaker. Um, and yeah, just someone I really respect. And who knows? I don't know. <laughs> yeah, no, no, no. That's great. I mean, that's part of the reason why I kind of do the, the podcast is, you know, to 
learn new names and wineries and just, uh, you know, kind of, you know, dive in more because, you know, the world of wine, you can never learn too much. It's always changing too. It's, it's phenomenal that way. Yes. Yes, it is. You know, and talking about another phenomenal winemaker, um, I don't know, a couple months ago, I sat down with, uh, Wynn Peterson Nedry and uh, I love she's amazing. The very first question I asked her, was like, so what is it like living with royalty? You know, <laughs> did you see our little video? Obviously. Of course I did. Of course I did. Uh, you know, so tell me about your, your two vines, YouTube channel. I mean, uh, that is quite the, quite the little adventure. Then you've having a bunch of fun with it and I can't yeah. wait to see who else you get on there. I had to take a little break, um, just with family stuff. And, uh, we did like six, we did six months basically. Um, we, we, videotaped everything in the summer in June and July of last year. And it was really to augment and supplement this, um, me and my winemaker friends, um, collaborative effort of, of sending wine to, to people who wanted like a wine from me and one of my friends. And we had to get really smart about how do we ship this? Cause I can't legally ship other people's wine. So we had to like figure out, do you ship? Do I, and then I ship and, Anyways, but it it was more complicated than it needed to be to continue that part of the project. Um, but we may look into like a third entity of like my husband has an LLC called Contheros. So it's a wine company and we might have his wine company um, sort of set it up so he can be a, a wine club so that he can ship out wine um, mm -hmm. And then we can continue that way. But in the meantime, we just kind of put that on a halt because it was getting too complicated. But I had a real, the best part for me ended up being these interviews with my friends because I know these people, I get to see them every now and again, and some not as often as I would like. Um, and it just, you know, having, I'm a, I love humor. I love, I mean, who doesn't, but I, right. I, I fancy myself as somewhat funny. Um, and so I'm always throwing jokes and cracking jokes in the winery and I'm, I love whimsical humor. I love wordplay. Obviously, if you look at some of my labels, I love puns. Um, and so just the between two ferns was always just something that I thought was just hysterical and ridiculous. And I like that kind of ridiculous humor. And so it's unexpected with wine because often when we sit down with winemakers, everything's so technical and we got to talk about this and the passion and you have to be taken so seriously and I'm obviously very serious about my winemaking, but I think there's more to life than just being in the cellar, getting technical all the time. And it gets it gets old and boring. And, and certainly in the in that little segment, we started off with the the you know the silly kind of you know right, the, deadpan right. humor. But then we we quickly went into like, well, tell me your story. Like, let's share like the ins and outs. It some of it's technical, but a lot of it was more just personal. Yeah. Right. Right. I mean, I've, uh, let me see. I remember when I remember, uh, you had show wines on there, mm -hmm. and, you know, a couple other that I'm trying to remember. Yeah. Uh, you had Remy on there. She was um, great. Yeah. yeah. Oh yeah. Yeah. She definitely was. Yeah. No, I'm, <laughs> I'm, I am a subscriber. I'm like, Oh, it's been too long. Thank you. Well, Drew Voigt, I think was the only one who really threw it back at me, <laughs> which I wanted him to. And he, he knows me well enough. We, when I worked for him, we had very much a brother sister kind of relationship. Right. You know, he almost like threw me into a pond once, like you know, just, <laughs> just ridiculous, like just silly brother, sister. We just had that energy of like brother, sister, 
um, energy. And so like, even in the cellar, I now make my wine at Harper Voigt. So as soon as he opened up his winery, I jumped at the, when he asked, I jumped at the opportunity to, to make my wine under the same roof. Cause I just adore him as a human. I think he's one of the smartest winemakers in the world. I think, I just think the world of him, he's of course a mentor. And oddly enough, I barely see him, <laughs> you know, we're under the same roof, but like just right. me having a schedule with a three-year-old and he running so many different, um, facets of his business. I rarely see Drew, but he was definitely one of the most fun to do this. He was the first one I had in mind when I was going to do me and my winemakers friends. Cause I knew he would throw it back at me in like right. an embarrassing way. <laughs> yeah, no, no, he, he's absolutely great. I sat down with uh, Jessica West and Peyton actually last week to interview them. Yeah. And, uh, you know, just, you know, it's, you know, with the new winery that's open and they're getting a bunch of new tanks, it sounds like, you know, things are really progressing forward amazingly over there. It's exciting. I mean, it's a beautiful spot. Um, what drew me to being in that facility, of course, working with people I like, but then also um, just the energy of like, no one's, no one, I don't even know how to describe it. Like people are serious they, and they're really exceptional at what they do, but, but they're so easygoing about it. You know what I mean? Like oh. you walk into that space, there's no tension ever. I mean, right. it's a really airy, um, joyful place to walk into. Like you, you can just feel that energy and, um, you know, I love quantum physics and I believe in like negative ions, positive ions and mm -hmm. like, and our attitude and our environment has an impact on the wine. I believe that, um, I just, right. it's a science that I could geek out on that on a level. I mean, I would hug my barrels for years because I was like, I'm, I'm, I'm putting forth negative ions into my, into my environment. And that's what you want, right? Like it's, it's why people go to the mountains. It's why people go to the ocean. Um, they are in the environment and they promote, they promote health and well being. So I wanted to be in a spot where I felt health and well being was, it was at the essence, you know, you step in there, you feel good. Yeah. No, um, I, I, yeah. Yeah. No, I, and, I, I, I totally agree. And then aside from that, so just, a good energy, great people and fun. They have so much, they have fun making wine. Like I, when I made wine under the same roof as Drew, you know, 10 years ago, whatever, prior back to when I first started, the energy was always fun and lighthearted. We were very serious about what we were doing, but we all could crack a joke. And, um, it was just, it was just the way I energetically wanted to be. If I have to share winery space, like that was really just, it came down to like, people have got to be light and, and, and positive. And because if not, then I easily just my personality, if I'm around negativity, then I default to negativity. So I just yeah. love that about this space. I'm going, I'm, I'm going on and on about. This no, no, you're, you're, <laughs> you're, you're totally the, fine. The um, other piece of it from an not just the energetic part of it is just, they have the best equipment. So it makes it easier. And I'm at a stage in life, Again, I own my own business. I'm doing this mostly by myself. I have some seller help here and there. Um, and I'm a mom of a three-year-old now, which all happened in the wake of the pandemic. So like my ethos has to be, I have to work smarter, not harder. It has to work out that I can juggle not having daycare when I thought I would or doing this or that, the other, my priorities have shifted. So for me to be able to step into a winery and not have to like, clean through belts of like old equipment, like 
that was a real challenge for me. Like it, it just, it deflated me and took away joy when I would be in a space where, um, the equipment was running the show. Do you know what I mean? Right. And right, that's right. not, that's working against me, not for me. And with the equipment that Drew had, like it is the easiest sorting line to work with. And it's like, I mean, I could blindfold myself and clean it. It's so easy. So that's huge when you're thinking about your time, your energy, your um, state of mind. So anyways, I shifted yeah, no. gears going from talking about <laughs> oh, no, 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 no. interview series it, with my friends to like this wonderful winery where I just landed last harvest. Yeah, no, I mean, you know, Drew Voigt has quite the, uh, the resume and, you know, he, he, if anybody in Oregon wine country, you know, um, has the, the processes down to a T, I, I'm pretty sure yeah. it would be Drew Voigt. I mean, he yeah, has... and he's a man who can make things happen, you know, he can oh, yeah. make things happen. And so that's, it's attractive to be working around people. Like I don't have to like sit here and worry about a thing. Like I just show up, I do my work. I'm not in their way. I am very cognizant of their time and their space and I'm very respectful of their time and their space. Um, and I would hope that if you sat down and we were talking to Drew or Jess and it happened to come up, like, how are your tenants? Like, I would hope that they would be like, yeah, no, they're a dream. They're easy. They're, they don't create chaos. They know what they're doing. They're smart. They, you know, gone to school. They've done this and they've done that or whatever. Like they know what they're doing and they're not going to cause any problems here. So like, I take pride in knowing that I'm stepping into their space, being respectful, um, not just interpersonally, but as a winemaker, um, I have my own equipment. I have my own stuff. Um, and we have enough of a rapport that we can share things and know that things are going to get returned the way we found them or that, that there's not, um, they're not going to be blowouts over like, you didn't clean this tank perfectly. It just, it's, it, none of that stuff happens. You know? Right. Right. No. And, and I get it. And like you mentioned, you know, Drew Void, you know, can, is, can get stuff done. Uh, you know, and one of the things that Oregon, you know, is really starting to the, like the whole sparkling program here in Oregon is really starting to, to take off. Yeah. And when you talk with the majority of people in Oregon making sparkling, they're using Andrew Davis. Well, Drew right. Voigt likes to use uh, Andrew Albin, I believe is his name. You know, yeah. so there, there's, you know, just the, the contacts that he has and everything is just absolutely amazing. And and because of the kind person that he is, he's very generous with sharing that information too. He's not, he doesn't hold on to things like Gollum in the ring. You know what I mean? Like <laughs> he finds something that he thinks is great. He'll be, he'll share that. And so, um, again, it's a, he just, there's a generosity to him that makes it really appealing to work under the same space for sure. Yeah, most definitely. Oh, uh, you know, you mentioned, you know, your, uh, your four-year-old or yeah, your three-year-old Three. son. Yep. Yeah. Oh, uh, you know, happening all during the pandemic and, you know, the pandemic was just the pandemic. I mean, it's just yeah. craziness, you know, but you've written about, uh, you know, another, uh, I wouldn't say, well, you also have like a holistic nutrition background, right? I do. And you've talked about, you know, the struggles of being a winemaker and being a holistic nutritionist. Uh, you know, it's... How do you feel about that today? I mean, it's... Do you still struggle with it? Like, what, what have you... What have you concluded? Well, you know, it's it's an it's an ever changing, ever evolving entity. This thing that I did, this thing that I decided to start. Um, so, 
you know, ask me any given day how I feel about it. It's funny. I'll, I might give you a different answer, but, <laughs> <laughs> but um, certainly you know, I was thinking about this cause I'm, I'm um, in the process of writing the skeleton for a cookbook right now. And it's very much um, a love letter to, you know, the, tr that's the typical American um, immigrant story of like, longing and memory and clinging to these traditions of wherever your, you know, grandparents left and to kind of keep, to keep that. Um, and to, to, so you have something unique to pass on to your children and so on. Um, so it's sort of that, that longing to be connected and grounded to where you come from. And I think this is what makes, you know, America, um, today, especially when, when we talk about the relevance and, and the politics of immigration and borders and everything, right? right. Um, those of us who whose parents or I'm sorry, grandparents or generations that came in like turn of the century, it wasn't that long ago, but it's long enough that people forget and they don't necessarily know the stories. Like I have Italian and Nordic heritage and there was a lot of shame in your language and you had to Americanize in the 1950s quickly because nobody wanted to hear your accent or, you know, wanted to embrace your culture. So we Americanized really quickly. Um, and there was a loss to that. And so anyways, I've been thinking about this holistically, it comes back to holism, um, not just using my nutrition background, um, but that's certainly comes up a lot when you're doing a project like this, but my, interest in becoming a winemaker from the beginning kind of stemmed from this connection to heritage. Um, and knowing that my mother's family, they, her ancestors, my great grandfather, when he immigrated here to, from the Campania, he was a descendant of, um, a landowner that had been producing, making, growing wine since the 1700s. So really I had this, like epiphany of like, I'm not a first generation winemaker. No, I go, my winemaking lineage goes back to the 1700s. And I never thought about that. Right. You know, we talk about winemakers here in California. They're like, I'm fourth generation winemaker. I'm like, that's great. That's amazing. Your family started something, but I really paused when doing this process of putting this information together on this cookbook that I'm working on. Cause it's a lot about the stories that we hold in and the, it's about longing about, again, this connection to um, our grandparents and our great grandparents and their stories and why they had to leave wherever they left. And, you know, my book is just my experience, but it relates to everybody who has an immigrant story. And that's basically all of us. Right. right. And, and most of us who have those stories that stem a little bit closer than, let's say, you know, the pilgrims <laughs> you know, that those of us who, who whose families have been here um, more recent if you will can can connect in a way and humanize the experience of what immigrants today are going through because it wasn't that long ago and so i think it's just it's about creating bridges and i'm interested in my food and wine about creating bridges um so i'm getting back around to your question is that there are, have been moments when i've asked myself why am i doing this why right. am I still doing this? Because it is really challenging and it's a financial burden that I just did not expect. Um, and while I was able to front the 
financing from the you know the beginning we're talking starting a barrel at a time so it's not like i came in and was like i'm gonna make five thousand cases and i fronted that no 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 i started with a barrel okay right right and slowly worked my way up and because of things like the pandemic and having a child i've had to like yo-yo up and down my production numbers just based on what i could handle what i could manage because i do most of this myself um and i do get the past couple of years i have since i had ivor um, I have had some help in the cellar, which has been, I mean, without it, I wouldn't have been able to continue. So right. the larger question is, you know, why do I do this? Why do I continue? Because it doesn't pencil out at all. And I'm not interested really in scaling. I don't want to make 50,000 cases of wine. I have just, that's, has zero interest to me because there's other things I want to do right. um, with my life. And I enjoy making wine and I love sharing it and breaking bread. And again, this comes back to some of the themes that I'm putting in this book cookbook that I'm working on. Um, but it really has to, it, there, there has to be this sense of when you say, why am I doing this? There has to be this sense of peace of, well, because if I wasn't doing it, I'd be sad. So for me, like, it's just, well, if I wasn't making wine, I'd be sad. But on the other hand, it's like, it also is is this enormous responsibility and financial responsibility that is aching in itself. And so, you know, you have to make it, it all has to work out. It all has to pencil out. So we're able to just make it work right now at small production. And, you know, the most I've made is 1,800 cases annually. Um, and I've dialed back a bit after having Ivor um, just with my recovery and then again, like I, he was born in 2019 and once he was a year old, we had the pandemic. So it was just a lot to have to go through. Oh yeah. And so, yeah, I mean, it's, it's something I ask myself literally every day. <laughs> so good question. <laughs> I well, don't know if I fully just, answered it. Well, no, it, it was, it's totally fine. I mean, it's, you know, to me, I, you know, I kind of struggle with it, you know, just being on the consumer side, right? I enjoy exploring wine. I enjoy the nuances and learning all about it, uh, you know, but also, you know, it's, it's all, it all has to be in moderation. It all has to, right. Right. I still want to be healthy. I want to be active. I don't want right. to, it, it's, it's a, it's a struggle that I work with as well. And it's yeah. just like, you know, there, there's a lot of sugar in there and I try to stay away from sugar, but I, I, I like, I like wine. What can I say? <laughs> it's true. Well, again, having a holistic nutrition background, um, I'm very, very mindful about wine and it's, it's place in my life. Um, and certainly I look at wine as not, um, it's, it, it's not a recreational thing for me. It's, it's a food group. So um, having that Italian heritage, we would have wine on the table to go with food and the wine would accompany the food and it was regional. Um, and you know this, you know how it works if you go to France, right. if you go to Italy, if you go to Spain. Um, and so, you know, I started drinking probably, well, definitely when I was in high school, I was allowed to have wine with a meal, especially Sunday, Sunday dinners were always a big deal. Um, but when I was like five, I even have memories of like, being at weddings or funerals or whatever. I have a big, big Italian family. My family's giant on my mom's side. Um, but I remember my grandmother giving us like just a little bit of wine with like Italian soda. So technically wow. I've been drinking wine since I was five. Um, 
Technically. <laughs> Technically, but not really. But right. um, so it's, I've always been, um, well, the mystery of alcohol was taken away from me because being around a family that allowed you when you're in your teens to have a glass of wine with dinner, you know, the mystery's gone. You don't need to like go out and like binge drink with your friends. I, I thought that was kind of ridiculous. Like I could just have a glass of wine with my mom. My dad would let me try beer. Um, right. he, you know, have a sip of beer. They're very European. They lived in Europe for a while. My parents did in, in the seven, late 60s, early 70s. So their approach was very different in, in how they raised us. And so they took away that mystery. My point is that, so with me growing up, wine was always something that was easy to have in moderation. And I'm not saying that I haven't had my moments of like letting go and having a good time with my friends, but especially now, especially when I was pregnant, it was very easy for me to like stop drinking wine, um, tasting it professionally. And even now, I mean, with Ivor, I, I don't, I don't have the desire to drink the way I might have in the past. Um, I'll taste my lots to, to do my technical tastings and that's pretty much it. And then if my husband will open a bottle, I might have like a third of a glass and that makes me happy. I'll have it just a little bit with my food and I'm good to go. But you're right. When you're in your role or, you know, my husband worked for a distributor um, and I've worked for a distributor in the past and I've worked in wine shop and wine bars in the past and you're constantly tasting and then you get excited. So you're constantly around wine and you want to, share and have that glass. It, it does. It gets tricky. It gets yeah, tricky. That, that it does. You know, we talked about, you know, um, you know, you being a veteran in, you know, in the world and everything. And just recently, uh, Paul G, you know, he did a, a review on your 2020 Cab Franc, you know, and it says, um, Cab Franc may be the most underplanted and overlooked red grape in the Northwest, often used in blends, but rarely as a full on varietal. It thrives in Southern Oregon, and this winery is an evangelist for evangelist for the grape. This is a fine example with balanced flavors of bl- blueberry fruit, hints of menthol, black tea, coffee, silky tannins, and a long, graceful finish. And he chose it as the uh, reserve for that you know that week's seller selection. Oh, uh, yeah, yeah. No, he is so great and wonderful, and just refreshing. Uh, yeah. Yeah, refreshing very is the refreshing. Word that comes to mind because it's not like he's new to this. He's been doing this a long time, and he hasn't. To me, he hasn't lost his curiosity. No, no, and, and he's what been I with... mean by that, yeah, is like I mean it in the Leonardo da Vinci sense. So I'm putting it on a high level. What I mean by that is that uh, Leonardo da Vinci lived by seven tenets, one of which was curiosità, curiosity. And he always said, the moment you lose curiosity, you're pretty much dead. Like that's, it's kind of it. Like your, your, your essence of life is over. Um, we should always be curious and we should always, no matter what your age is, no matter what station, no matter where you are in your career, if you are lacking that curiosity and that, and this is, and I'm, I mean, even as a winemaker, you know, this is why I think school is essential. I mean, I feel like when you just are like, I'm going to work a few harvests and I learned everything I need to know, then you're lacking curiosita. Because if you have curiosita, you want to learn everything you possibly can about something. Exactly. And you will like fight to the bone to learn everything you possibly can. Now, right. not everybody doesn't have to have a Da Vincian kind of like outlook in life. But I think when you're doing something as specialized as winemaking, like, I mean, I'll go out and just say it. I just feel like if you don't have that curiosita, 
then you're going to sell yourself short and it will be reflected in your wines. Right. No, you have to, you have to be curious. I mean, you have to, uh, like when I spoke with Jessica and Peyton the other week, you know, they were like, I, you know, they're starting their own, uh, label and they wanted mm -hmm. to play with some varietals that, you know, is outside of Pinot and whatnot. So they have a, you know, a, a multiple, I, I want to say a 23 day, uh, skin contact Pinot Gris. And yeah. they just want to play and just be curious and dive into all that. I mean, that's, right. that is I totally agree with you. It is an essence of life and that's part of the reason why I'm doing, you know, all the, the podcast and everything that I'm doing because, you know, there's, there's so many stories out there and there's so much to learn and just to understand and see the people behind the wine is just absolutely amazing. Well, yeah. And, and pulling it back to the review you just shared and Paul Greggett, um, I, I just appreciate how he, he still, um, I mean, carries with him this, this torch of curiosity. He's not, he's not interested in reviewing the old, the old school way. That's why he, I mean, I love that he broke away from enthusiasts and is doing his own thing. I think it's brilliant. Right. I, for one, appreciate his voice and not, I don't, I don't believe that I deserve to have great reviews. I mean, I, I respect the critic. I really do. But where I have a problem is when critics are they don't even like get to know who you are they're just they're just tasting a bunch of wines right and right. and it's reflected i mean like i i went through a, per, a particular i ended up ignorantly going down a rabbit hole with a, a a critic that i thought i needed to have critique my wine and it was a vulnerability on my part because it was i was i was seeking a validation i mean i'm going to be just blunt and honest about it um, and especially as a woman winemaker, I was like, well, if I'm going to be taken seriously for the next iteration of wine that I want to make, which is like expensive, small lot wine, then I better get these kinds of reviews to attract the kinds of readers and, and wine consumers who are going to appreciate this. And I, my, my reasons were all wrong, but it was, it was innocent enough, but I submitted wines and then I got an email that in order to see the scores, I had to pay $399 to get the newsletter. And as a small, tiny little business, that is not nothing. You know, like I was like, right. all right, I guess I will have to figure out a bill that I'm not going to pay this month. I want to know what the score is now, you know, because now it's out there and I want to know what it is. And one of the scores was just so basic. And then the other one was just as bad as it could be. And it was so humbling to me, like, because I expected at least, you know, average, average, and when I say average, I believe like 90 is like an average by, right. by looking at how the magazines score. And this particular entity, like when I was flipping through, there were so many 92s and they didn't mean anything. And the descriptions were like, told you nothing. Right, and I was right. like, what am I paying $3.99 for? First of all, one of my wives was compared to, he thought it was a Pinot Noir. They meant, wrote it up as if, as if it was a Pinot Noir, using the word Pinot Noir in it. Oh. And I was like, this is Southern Oregon Cabernet You've totally missed the mark. And now it's going to be my shame because people who follow you and believe in you are going to see that score and think, don't bother to buy that woman's wine. So I had a really hard moment of like, maybe I should submit my wines because nobody knows who I am. It's going to be totally misunderstood. And I believe in blind tasting and all of that. And I, I respect the critic, 
But this came to a point where I recognized like they didn't even know what they were tasting. And so right. I was like, and, and like, be, like Mia culpa, I guess. But, and then you flip and see someone like um, Paul Greggett and that's not his approach at all. And he's coming from a place of curiosity. He's like, I want to know what this wine is and I want to learn more because I love Cabernet Franc. I think it's exciting that it's being grown in Southern Oregon. Here's a story. Like he, he, again, so I don't think that I necessarily deserve certain praise or scores, but I certainly appreciate when a critic takes the time to consider what a wine is before he, you know, writes about it. If that makes right. sense. Right. Yeah, no, it does. It makes complete sense. And, you know, one of the things that Paul does, you know, he'll he'll leave the bottle open for like three or four days and kind of see what it's like after that time to kind of get the, you know, um, what its aging potential is. And, right. uh, you know, I come from a tech background and, you know, 99, 2000, you know, the whole term, the long tail effect was just, you know, coming into into play. And really, when you get into wine, I, I think the long tail effect really comes into play, especially in a direct to consumer market. I yeah. mean, you have those, you have your, your tribe, your followers. And really, when you get, you know, the monthly wine enthusiasts, it's yeah. like how many freaking wines are in there? And it's hard to keep track of, of everything. And it's like, oh, it, it's just, right. it, it's, it is difficult. And I, you know, I really appreciate what Paul is doing as well. And it's, uh, scores are scores are hard yeah. uh, <laughs> uh, uh -huh. you know but uh i i think you you had kind of touched on you know that you were um uh did you did you finish the uh hbl special that Brene brown did for uh i can't think of i didn't new... finish the whole series i actually only okay. got to the first one but okay. i have the book um atlas of the heart that's what it was Yes, Atlas of the Heart. I have a few of her books, um, but I wanted to get that book because when I saw, I watched the first episode first, I was like, oh, this is a Netflix special or HBO on Brandon Brown. Of course I'm going to watch this. Of course. Put the first one in and it just, it resonated with me. Um, just in interpersonal relationships of not always having the language for what you're really feeling. Um, and I, you know, I worked in communications for many, many years uh, from the standpoint of wine, but when you talk about communications in in terms of like talking to your mother or your sister or your child or your neighbor right. or whatever, um, it's interest. It was just was very interesting to me to see that there's often not a language to describe to really adequately describe things that we're actually experiencing or feeling. So I, I was I was hooked on that concept. So I will finish it and I will flip through the book when I have some time but yeah no i i totally understand uh my yeah. favorite book of hers is gifts of imperfection Ooh, and yeah. uh you know there was a part in that book where you know uh, a husband walked up to her and says you know well you know you're only talking about the you know the, the female side of the fence but you know when you look at you know my wife my daughter they expect me to always be on that white horse and come in and save the day Huh. And Brene was like, huh, I hadn't really thought about that. But it's, you know, in many ways, it, it is so true. And, uh, you know, just to see her taking a, a holistic approach, you know, at shame and just constantly talking about these, you know, these, these difficult subjects. Right, right. Uh, 
and it and it's funny, you know, I have a 13 year old and, you know, within the, you know, within this week, you know, there's been a couple of times she's like, oh, thank you so much for making that a very awkward conversation. And I'm like, <laughs> but, but that's what I'm trying to do. I want you to be comfortable in these awkward situations. Yeah, it's true. Yeah. It's, you know, I, I can't even imagine like, you know, every stage is, it has its own unique, um, challenges but then also of course the unique things that are so beautiful about the, that particular stage and three just it's 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 a tough it's a tough one like i thought it was going to be easy i thought i thought oh. we, we breezed through two because everyone's like terrible twos so if we breezed through it right we're just happening to get a lot of it like now so it's 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 fine but it's like I've, I've realized that parenting is so less about me teaching Ivor. It's like, I'm learning, I'm having to learn so many things often uncomfortable about myself, you know, like my need right. to be in control. Right. Like that's oh, fun. Yeah. Yeah. Whoa. And just there, there's so much, there is so much. I, uh, you know, she just turned 13 in October and you know, there's been some instances within the last few months. I'm like, really? Yeah. We're going to bring out the 13 year old right now. Please don't. No. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah it's, it's, it's just Where's crazy. my little girl. Where is she? Yes. I miss her. Oh, <laughs> uh, talking about uh, little ones and whatnot. You know, I, I know it's super early on in, you know, in your uh, son's journey, but yeah. you know, what kind of legacy do you want to leave, leave him? Or have you given that any thought at all? Always. I think about him like all the time, everything I do, I think about him. Um, and I think the thing about this business is it's not that I necessarily want to leave something for him to take on because I don't, I don't believe that we are here to create expectation for our children. Um, it's here. If I want to have something that's there for him, if he is interested, then I will hundred percent support him and make sure he has all the tools he needs but really, I've ever since ever was born, my husband and I have had this philosophy on baby led everything. So like, we didn't force the feeding at like, oh, it's three, six months, whatever. Now he six months, we got to start. We just let him kind of lead the way with everything. Potty training right. was a dream because we didn't push it on him. He came to us and was like, "Mommy can have some underwear." Yeah, let's get some underwear. Let's so do like it. everything we've done, weaning from nursing, everything has been about him and his journey and his, when his needs, when things are met, then we move on. And right. so we, that's just our philosophy and we're privileged that we can work that way to give him that flexibility. It's not like I have to go to a job where I have to leave and like, uh Oh, gotta go. So you gotta, you better learn how to potty. Like there was no pressure. There were no deadlines facing us because I've, I'm able to, both my husband and I now work from home. So it, it creates a, um, an ideal right. environment, if you will, to do what we want. So that said, you know, I have no expectation for him to do anything but be happy. So if he, I, but what I do want is I want him to see, we do our best to model the right behavior. Sometimes we model bad behavior as parents, and, you know, we feel guilty about that. And it's like, that's life. That's, we always tell them that's part of the human journey. Sometimes we're going to mess up too. Right. Um, and I don't want to set up these false expectations that parents are perfect and they do everything right and we're authority. I want him to learn that we're human and we do the best we can. Yeah. Um, but I also, in raising him, um, my husband and I, this is sort of our philosophy, is that, um, you know, he, uh, he's just such a sweet, 
loving, interesting little boy. And I feel like my work is to ensure that we're, you know, we're raising a white boy. So I want to make sure that privilege is in check. I want to make sure that he has empathy, compassion, kindness. That's my work. I'm more, more, I'm concerning myself more with that than legacy. But at the same time, it's important for me as a woman and as a woman entrepreneur, it's important to me that he sees me in a position where he um, hopefully has some pride. Like, I'm proud of you, mom, for how hard you worked and it wasn't easy. And you you did a lot without a lot of help. And um, and I don't mean like people working in the cell, that kind of thing, but I mean in structurally right, right. running a business. Um, I want him to see the struggles. I want him to see when I'm like coming home crying sometimes. I want him to bear witness to that. And I want him to glean his own interpretation of what my work was and is or is and was. Um, and that said, if it's around, my label is around long enough that he could potentially work with it one day, that's great. But at the same time, I'm not... I didn't make this wine for him as a legacy thing. I mean, I don't even know if I want to see it through for five years from now, to be honest. Who knows? I probably right. will, but um, <laughs> we might do a second label. I don't know. But but I just, um, I really am living my life to live in the moment and not in the future, which is why I'm not scaling, because scaling your business brings a whole whole onslaught of other issues. As, as soon as you start scaling, your costs go up. Uh -oh. Sorry. That's okay. Your costs go up. Um, your demands go up. So everything, you're not just making more wine, okay. you're making more, you're taking more away from your life. And right. And there's so much more pressure. Yeah. There's more pressure, more to sell, more to do. And that's just not what I want to do with my life. Personally, I enjoy making wine. I like doing it small scale. Um, and I will continue to do it until it just doesn't serve its purpose anymore. And I, I try to live a purpose-driven life. So I'm in this phase, this unique phase in my 40s where I'm trying to rediscover my purpose. Um, so I'm doing a lot of journaling. I have a life coach. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. No, I, I get it. I love 40s, right? I'm, I'm, I'm 47, and really, when I turned 40, it was like the best time ever. So I, yeah. I, I get it. I totally get yeah. it. Yeah, I'm around your age. <laughs> <laughs> yes, I same thing. And so I'm I'm in a space right now where I'm I'm focusing on what is my purpose? Um, am I using my gifts to help make the world a better place? What 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 time do I have to do that kind of accomplish that kind of thing? Um, and it can be small. It can be very small. It doesn't have to be this epic, like I'm Oprah Winfrey and I'm opening up a school for, you know, I don't have to do this grandiose thing. It can be just one small thing that I'm doing to help make the world a better place. So um, I'm really trying to look inward uh, at myself and what my legacy is. And and the wine business is just this wine that thing that I created. Um, it's nice and I and I'm grateful for it. And it's opened a lot of really unique doors for me. But, um, it's, it's just, it's, to me, it's not the destination. It's just, it's like, if you're on a train and you're, you know, right. your life is a train, it's just, it's a stop along the way. Um, but it's not the final destination. Does that make sense? Yeah, no, it makes complete yeah. sense. Oh, uh, do you have any idea what that final destination is? 
Well, you know, I, I have gleaning moments of what I think I do, but honestly, my, um, my undergraduate degree was creative writing and I focused on poetry and I went to a very small women's college and my mentor was Mary Oliver. So I was very lucky to have access to a poet of that level and esteem. And I was pretty good at it. I actually, um, she entered a poem of mine uh, to the Academy of American Poets for a college competition. And I won the first place prize of a, a American college poets. Wow. And, and then I just, I didn't have the, I didn't have the self-confidence to carry on. Like I thought about, um, getting an MFA in creative writing, but then I was like, well, what am I going to do? Eight, I was 22 when I graduated from college. Right. So I was like, what do I know? What am like, what am I going to write about at 22? You know? Right. It, it's yeah. Decide what you're going to do for the rest of your life at 22. That's impossible. <laughs> Yeah, it made zero sense to me to go and get an MFA in creative writing at 22. I was just like, that's kind of irresponsible. I need to go live a life. So I just decided to go out and live a life and make mistakes and, you know, have my heart broken a few times and just live. And so that's what I did. And there were all these stops along the way, including making wine. Um, but ultimately, ultimately, my heart is writing and I, I just see myself as things... I have more confidence now because I have, I've had a more of a lifetime now of experience. Right. Um, you know, I became a mom at 45, you know, that, if that tells you there I revealed my age, <laughs> <laughs> but that, you know, I never would have thought in a, if you asked my 12 year old self, when do you think you're going to get married and have kids? I was like, I'll get married when I'm 22 and I'll have my first child at 25. Like that's what I would have thought is my reality. And it, it just did not go anywhere near that that destination on that, on that train ride. So long answer to your question. I, I see myself being kind of a crone. I, I have an old, I have a braid here. I want a braid that goes all the way down my back and I want it to be silver. I will never color my hair or dye it. I want an old lady silver braid down my back and I want to, will walk the beaches and mountains and just write poems the way Mary right. Oliver did really. She had yeah. a notebook and a pencil everywhere she went, and she wrote most of her po her poems writing in Provincetown, like in Cape Cod, just writing as she walked, a meditation, yeah. if you will. Yeah, no, that's that is beautiful. That is absolutely <laughs> gorgeous. Oh, <laughs> I have some rapid fire questions to kind of wrap things up. Sure. Okay. Uh, during harvest, who is your favorite artist uh, to listen to? Ooh. I mean, I always love Florence and the Machine because she's just like my favorite. Um, but then I will go into, I mean, we've been doing this for years, but it never gets old. Um, like 70s Yacht Rock. Oh, yeah. yeah. No, that's, <laughs> I love that ELO. Be... ELO is one of my ultimate favorite bands. Oh, awesome. Uh, <laughs> harvest Notes, are they digital or handwritten? Handwritten, 100%. <laughs> uh, what is your favorite indulgent food? Oh, my favorite indulgent food. I mean, I love really, really, really good, high quality, organic, fair trade, dark chocolate. Oh, okay. Um, if you could choose a superpower, what would it be? Invisibility. Mm -hmm. Favorite superhero? Wonder Woman. 
And last book that you read or, you know, like on audio or something of that nature? Violetta by Isabella Allende. Ooh, what is that about? It's about, so Isabella Allende is one of my favorite writers. Um, She's Chilean-American. And she wrote House of Spirits. Like, she's just phenomenal. Um, But Violetta is, it's wonderful because it chronicles this woman's life. Um, but it starts in when the Spanish flu was going on. So obviously I think she got her inspiration writing this with the pandemic. And so reading it today, um, you could just sort of draw comparisons of the experience of, of, and it's only a small part of the book, just the intro begins with the Spanish flu, but it just chronicles this woman's life and it's just beautifully written. Very just, you just get pulled into her life story. Right. I'll have to check that out. I I'm all about life stories. Yeah, that's wonderful. That's awesome. Yeah. It's it's one hundred percent fiction, but yeah. Yeah, but still, I mean, yeah, no, it, that's it would all. It, I I love a good story. Yeah, she's yeah. she's a phenomenal writer. So if you haven't read Isabella Allende, I highly recommend her books. Well, very very cool. Well, <laughs> Leah, that's all the questions that I have for you today. I can't thank you enough for all all of your time. I I really appreciate it. Well, thank you so much for reaching out. It was a lot of fun, and I hope I wasn't too long winded. Oh, no, it was great. I, I love the long form questions and answers and just really diving deep. So I, I can't thank you enough. Well, thank you very much. And have a wonderful rest of your day. You too. Thank you so much. Uh, cheers. All right.